Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the line. Yes! Marco DeVille! That's what we expected from him! To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I wanna spend all time with you just the two of us. Welcome to the Two Solitudes Special Montreal Impact Season Review Podcast. I am Dwayne Rollins in the enemy territory of Toronto. Kevin Laramay, he represents the home team in Montreal today. Uh, we have a special guest from Goal from Sportsnet, uh, Nick Sabetti. He's come and had a very interesting conversation we pre-recorded a little while ago. Um, candid conversation at times. Uh, very informative. Uh, we're going to have that up after a quick little break. But before we get into all of that, Kevin... How is uh, the playoff eve here in uh, Canada, if we're uh, Canadian fans, like we talked about yesterday? How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Excited for tonight's game. But uh, re-reading my notes and re-watching the standings and stuff like that to get ready for this show, well, it got me in a a bummer mood. I was like, yeah, that season really wasn't that easy on all aspects, coaching level, on the pitch, in the stands, on the TV. It wasn't easy at all, and one thing that always you and me agree, we always agree, it's it's never dull with the Canadian MLS team. No, they certainly make up for uh, their lack of success. They they make up for with their immense entertainment at various times. So uh, we, uh, we we had a nice conversation with Nick. Uh, why don't we uh, we bring him on now? We'll have a listen to that one, and then after the after he's done, Kevin and I will come back and we'll give our own thoughts uh, following that, and then we'll end today's podcast with a little bit of um, a review of last night's women's game, uh, a three-two loss to Japan, a last-minute heartbreaker for the Canadians, um, and a, a bit of a turf update because it's not two solitudes unless we talk about what Kevin about turf and unfortunately we have a bad news concerning a women's national team player as well yes all right so we'll take a quick break we'll be right back after this And welcome back to the Two Solitudes special Montreal Impact Season Review Podcast. I am Dwayne Rollins along with Kevin Laramay. And we have uh, Nick, uh, Nick Sabetti on the line. Sorry, Nick Sabetti on the line from Golan Sportsnet, freelance writer there for uh, Does Their Soccer Stuff. Great writer. Has a lot of good stuff to talk about the impact. And Nick, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Nick, that's... I, we're kind of going to go through this chronologically, and, and to me, from an outsider perspective, a lot of the impacts problems started basically in January and February last year, when not a lot happened. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, I think that was, uh, you know, the main concern uh, going into the season was the lack of movement in the in the transfer window, uh, and clearly, given the way that the um, 
the team did at the end of last year completely collapsed at the end, failing to win. I think it was uh, only one win in their last eight games and then their emphatic loss against Houston in the last game of the playoffs. Uh, that kind of, for me and for many, uh, made it clear that uh, you know this team wasn't ready to kind of make a run in the playoffs. This team still needed pieces. And then on top of that, they lost Arnold, they lost Nesta. And so they needed help. They needed some, you know, some important upgrades, I think. And that didn't come, and the players felt it. I think the players felt, realized, too, that they needed that. And uh, so the morale was low, and the season, you know, started, uh, started in terrible fashion. So, um, yeah, I think that was the main issue going in. And it didn't help, I think, too, that, uh, you know, they, they spent some time deciding on their coaching situation because they... Um, you know, they 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 need they took a, like two a few months um, to decide whether to keep Shaibon or not, and then and then they had to bring then they brought in Klopas. So already that took some time out of you know looking for other players. So that didn't help either. Nick, talk, let's go back and talk about the coaching situation. It seems so long ago now, but uh, <laughs> what was the delay in your mind? And and just you know expand on that. How much did it hurt the start of the season? Well, you know, I think I think the delay. Um, my feeling is that uh, well, I think the delay was just they didn't, um, you know, because they have this reputation of making you know sort of very you know, hasty decisions and emotion like decisions based on emotion. And, um, I think they kind of wanted to take their time as to you know to decide whether to keep Shadow or not. But I thought it was like bizarrely wait far too long. We waited almost, I think it was about two months until that we got a decision on Shalibon, which I thought was was strange. Uh, yeah, I know, the Sanctus, uh, um, in his press conference, um, I'm kind of jumping to, in terms of chronology and jumping towards the end now, but he mentioned, the Sanctus mentioned like a month or two ago that um, that that was an issue, you know, that, that the fact that they, they it took some time to kind of get Klopas in place, you know, because they, they couldn't look really look at players at that point, you know, they were, you know, you can't really go after players when you don't really have a coach in place. Um, so, so yeah, that, that did affect them, I think. And, all right, beginning of the season, like you were talking about, the coaching staff and the recruitment was almost non-existent. And it brought us to a bad beginning of the season. The only highlight of the offseason, because it could be the re-signing of Marco De Vaio. Was that re-signing, in hindsight, we all know his glory days are long past, but do you think that it hindered the future eventually? Because when they re-signed him, we had good expectations, but it took some playing time from a young guy could have been there. Yeah, that's a, well, you know, that's a tough one. Um you know, it's easy to look at hindsight now. Um, the season that he had last year was just phenomenal. And despite his age, and you kind of think, yeah, he's not going to score 20 goals again. But, um, you know, he had such a good year that, you know, you figure, and, and you know, physically uh, in very good shape as well. So at the time, it's tough, you know, I, I think in fairness to them. Uh, yeah, they probably at the time should have moved on, should have, found someone else, uh, but, um, you know, I think they figured that he could at least have a pretty good season this year and help them out, and I think he's just such a, he's such a big piece of the locker room in terms of, and so, um, 
it's hard to kind of let a guy like that go. But, you know, in terms of replacing Vio, I mean, uh, that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, those are big shoes to fill. And, and actually a concern going for next year is, uh, is how they're going to, I mean, you know, that's a, it's a tough guy. To, they got to replace him. And, you know, obviously you can't replace a guy like that in January. You got to do that, you know, in the summer. So I think that's another thing too, going back to last year is just, you know, um, it's hard to replace a guy like that in January. You know, you can't, uh, you can't find a, a big sort of, a big sort of name or in January, you kind of got to go and get him in the summer. And then, and then like, you know, New York city did like Orlando did, and then seal them up and then bring them in January. But, yeah, I think in hindsight they probably should have uh, moved on. But it's hard to, at that point, you know, given the season, yeah, it's difficult to, to do that, I think. If we go back to the first couple of games of the season, which I call in my mind the first slump because I divide the season in three slumps because that's basically how it went. Well, the first slump was was brought tactically. The team weren't ready off after the training camp to physically and together to play soccer, uh, was was that a trend that continued during the whole season? Do you mean the the, the physical uh, the physical side of the thing? Physical side and just gelling together. The first couple of games, they were always mm-hmm. they lost their duels. They were always second on the ball, and it seemed like that was the, the theme of the season. Yeah, I think you know. The first few games, uh, you know, the first two games on the road uh, weren't so bad. Um, uh, And then, yeah, you know, there were some close games in the beginning. There were some games where they probably, or some of their maybe, some of their better games in the season, I would think, were in the first few games. And then uh, there was one or two games there that were not bad, and then, but, you know, the losses kept coming and the morale was low. And, yeah, I think the physical aspect is is an issue um, because it's a team that, um, um, I don't know if this comes down to just, you know, maybe a problem in terms of the physical preparation. or But it also, I think, in terms of the players on this team, it's not a team that can sort of sustain... Um, a level of fitness throughout the entire 90 minutes, um, and this is and this has been a problem um, all season, really. Uh, and you see it especially now. I think the last games at home, um, basically the first half is not bad, and then the second half, uh, the last 30 minutes, they're just defending, and it's not because they necessarily want to be defending in their box, but they don't have the energy to kind of. You know, kind of, you know, get up the field, put a bit of pressure in certain moments. They they just don't have that, and I think it's something. It's an issue. I think, and it's I think it's a problem of the composition of the team that was put together. A lot of older guys, a lot of wingers that aren't necessarily able to kind of get back and forth up the field to the facility. But yeah, that the physical aspect has, has been an issue all season, right from the get go. I would say, uh, Nick. To take it just a slight step back, uh, when the preseason predictions were released, uh, a lot yeah. of fans in Montreal lost their mind when uh, outside people were picking them near the, the bottom of the league. The first part uh, ranking, yeah. Yeah, do, do you think that that extended, that sort of belief and, and complacency with the, the roster as it stood in place uh, extended to the front office? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, I can't say for certain, but, you know, they're, I mean, they certainly, um, well, I know they certainly seem, they certainly were confident in the roster that they had. Um, and, uh, you know, they, I think they, the, they overestimated, I think, the roster, uh, the, the, the team that they had. Uh, basically, I think that's that was the main issue. I don't know if if you know in reading sort of all these previews, they were like you know oh I'm going to show them, you know they're going to see like they're wrong kind of thing. Um, I don't know. It's possible. There's a good. You know, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't discount that. But I I can't say for certain. But certainly uh, from what Zank has has been saying in these last in these last few weeks. Uh, that you know, he seemed confident in the team that you know, you know, the team did make the playoffs last last year, albeit like on the last day. But I think he's you know, there's a lot of younger players that are brought in, and maybe you know, obviously he at that point you know he knew that he could bring Ignacio. He knew that he was going after Ignacio Piatti already. Um, he knew that Ignacio Piatti would would be coming in the summer. So in that sense, looking at that, he probably figured that the team was going to be at least good enough to, um, you know, maybe you know not in a playoff position by the summer, but at least very close to that, and kind of uh, so in to, you know in a position where you know when Patty would come in the summer, that uh, you know that they would be in in a pretty good spot. So I think that's probably maybe what their thinking was. Um, which so they certainly weren't expecting at all of the slump they had. You know, one win in the first eleven games. So, um, and you know, I, I think the preseason what what struck me too was just um, um, in terms of just you could just see that like the, the, the sheer lack of excitement in, in the preseason. <laughs> Actually, Nakajima uh, Farron mentioned the other day that like. This team hasn't even had any like outside activities um, compared to last year. Shalabam was always doing stuff out. You know, they're, they're, doing always... a... they're doing raquettes in Parc La Fontaine. Yeah, they, they were they were everywhere. They were always doing things like uh, the kind of team bonding activities. This team did did nothing, uh, and you know you could see them out at the beginning of the season. Certainly. Uh, you know they 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 weren't a confident bunch. They were still recovering. Um, from you know from the slump that they had the year before, and uh, and yeah, I don't think Klopas necessarily brought uh, sort of a, a new era, sort of a, sort of confidence to the team. I, there wasn't you know there's a lot of negative. Obviously, when you finish as low as you, as Montreal did this year, there there obviously is mm-hmm. going to be more negative than positive. But there were some positives. I think that you can start yep. with uh, maybe they got a little lucky with uh, with the, that Edmonton result in the Voyagers Cup, and then to go on and yep. get a, a distracted TFC, which led to that CCL uh, campaign. Talk about the importance of the Canadian Championship and the CCL uh, as a positive beacon this season. Yeah, uh, you know, and then and then New York, not you know, they they barely. I mean, they really, you know, they didn't play any of their starters through through the group stage, so. That helped too, but yeah, I, no, I, I think getting to the quarterfinals, uh, you know, winning the Canadian Championship at the time was important uh, for the team. Also, because um, you know, if they didn't win that, 
I mean, they would have nothing. They would have had nothing to play for, <laughs> like, for the rest of the season. Uh, so that was really fundamental. And yeah, getting to the Champions League certainly gives them something uh, to look forward for next season. Um, and you know, it gives them. You know, there's a lot of talk also about uh, you know a decline in ticket sales, a decline in, in sort of interest and. A decline in, in media coverage as well. Um, there's been a lot of talk about that. So, in the sense that you know, start getting being able to start with uh, you know, a quarterfinal game against a Mexican team, you know, you know, at an Olympic stadium, it's a chance to kind of um, create some, um, you know, create some fanfare, create some momentum going into next season. Although, you know. For a team that hasn't won a game on the road all season to go to Pachuca and start the game <laughs> on the road, I mean, man, that's they got a lot of work to do. I can tell you that. The impact this season have made a couple of roster moves to try to react to the season they had. The roster move had the opposite effect that were wanted. Do you think that maybe though all those trades that they did were uh, panic moves, and do you think that they were planned? In the future, because if we're regarding the example, the Colin Warner trade, he was really missed in Montreal after he left. Yeah, uh, a lot of the moves they did, uh, I don't think they were great, uh, except for say, you know, you no know, Mac for Wenger trade. Yeah, I thought that was a good trade, and I still think, although you know, Wenger now is doing very well in Philadelphia. Uh, maybe even, in a certain sense, better than McInerney's doing in Montreal, also because Swinger's been playing probably a lot more. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, yeah, a lot of the trades were, you know, the Warner for Nakajima trade, um, for the impact, that didn't really make any sense at all. Um, because they're, they were very thin in the midfield, and then they lost, uh, and then they lost Bernardello. And that was a big thing. Although I don't think Bernardello was des- like was good enough, you know, to be to, to have a, a designated player tag. But at the same time, he was a big piece in the midfield, and I knew his option was going to be up in the summer. So losing him uh, um, and not replacing him with anyone, and then losing Carl Warner um, left a huge gap in the in the center midfield. And a lot of the games that they started losing were, were had a lot to do with just. Just being totally overrun in midfield, totally overrun. Um, you know, they had, they had Bernier in midfield, but then he was playing with Felipe, who's not a defensive midfielder, and he can't cover ground anyway. That was a real problem. Um, and just a lot of the signings that they did is very sort of, you know, Bon and Gorkalaria. You know, I don't have the list of you know players they brought in, but <laughs> yeah, there was a lot one. of. Pardon? There's a big one. There's a big list. Uh, there's a big one. Uh, there's a big uh, let's see, I, you have like uh, Issei Nakajima Ferran, you're talking about Colin Warner. Yeah. And there's yeah. Uh, just the one that pops to mind, and the one, like you say, with Bernardello gone. And yeah. it, it was mind-boggling to me that the midfield would be so depleted that you don't bring anybody else. And they were yeah. almost uh, uh, on the shoulders of uh, like the Tissot, who was almost playing a midfielder then. And I think it, he got confused with all that, and he doesn't know what to do nowadays. Yeah, you know, I, the, the the loss of Bernardello was really telling to me um, because he's a guy, he's a designated player. You know he's up, you know his contract is the option is up in the summer. 
at the beginning of the season, you got to decide, look, it, are we going to keep Bernardello in, in the summer, or are we going to replace him with, a, with like, with a designated player at center midfielder? Because the impact, I think, right now needed a designated player in center midfield, someone who could do just about everything. But um, they they knew his option was up, and and it was almost as if, I mean, they should have planned if he was going to leave. They should have planned a replacement for him. Uh, definitely, like and. And it's almost as if they didn't at all. I, my feeling is that they wanted to keep him, and they thought they would have no trouble keeping him. And they were caught off guard. Uh, they, they, you know, he, you know, they, they were. He said, uh, "Actually, no, I got a better offer in Mexico." And uh, you know, ciao, I'm taking off. And they didn't expect that. And they almost caught off guard, and that was a that was a big loss. And they didn't. Uh, they weren't able, and they, they basically replaced Bernardello with Gorka Luria, a guy who hadn't played in like a year and a half, um, just hadn't, didn't have a team. So, you know, it's, um, I think those trades, all the movement that they were doing, um, didn't, uh, didn't help the scientists' case very much. Um, oh, for that matter. Uh, didn't well, yeah, it didn't help Lopez either, but it didn't help the Sanctus in terms of it kind of exposed his sort of lack of a plan um, for this team. Uh, and Clopas wasn't certainly wasn't happy uh, with the changes either because you know Clopas liked Warner. Clopas was playing Warner in like every single game, um, and then you know the Sanctus decides to trade him for Nakajima Farron, and the impact already had so many wingers that was like. And, they are, and then Piatti was coming, was kind of like another winger attacking midfielder. So they have all these attacking midfield players. And, and you know, Nakajima Farron was like kind of the least of, I mean, the winger position was like the least of their issues. And you trade, you know, center midfield for him. I know that Sank is not crazy about Carl Warner, but uh, still a very useful player for this team. Uh, and now Nakajima Farron has barely even played this year. So... So there you go. So, but yeah, it's um, it's it's one of those seasons where um, they, you know, a lot of movement, a lot of the trades and, and players that Sanctus acquired, uh, you know, his, his haven't been great. Aside from say the you know the big names, you know, like a Piatti, like a DiBio, you know, players that you know you already know they're good players. You don't need to kind of scout them. You already know that you know. You already know what they can do, um, but yeah, I think you know this season sort of really um, exposed the Sanctus's, um, you know, uh, limitations in terms of the sporting director, and and uh, paid the price for it uh, later on in the season finally. Um, but though he's still sort of around, that's another that's another <laughs> interesting story. Um, but. Uh, yeah. So no, the 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 team needs uh, needs you know a lot of the players that they've signed are are sort of these quick fix players, older players. They need to you know some of the better teams in the league when they sign a player, they're always looking two three years ahead, and that's what I think the Impact need to start doing. They need to start getting players uh, with a few years in mind. Trouble is that you know Klopas looking next year is under pressure. Probably doesn't have two three years down the line to look to, you know, he's thinking about next year and, and doing well next year. Uh, so, you know, that's another issue. But, uh, yeah, a lot of, uh, 
there's uh, a lot. I think the impact has a lot to learn from everything that's happened this year, for sure. I think that uh, the way you describe that sounds a lot like a team. If you were to turn west on the 20 and follow it to the 401 and go about four hours, you might find another team that's made the same mistakes for a lot of years. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, I was going to talk about DeSantis, but I don't know, like you just said there a minute ago, that uh, that, that story might not be done yet. So I, I think we might just need to see what happens and how much involvement he has moving forward. Uh, the yeah. one thing I did want to talk about, the Piatti signing, I mean, obviously that was the high-profile thing. Uh, there was the yeah. controversy a bit before he came, but uh, he did certainly look like the real deal on the pitch in his limited time. Uh, yeah. Is that enough to sort of propel Montreal forward in uh, 2015? Um, no, well, I mean, not. I mean, this team needs um, certainly a very good player from what we've seen. Certainly a player that uh, the impact could build around. I mean, from what we've seen so far, you know, he looks like you know top five, six, seven player as well. I mean, Villa and and Kaká comes next year, but certainly it looks like a very, very talented player that you can build around, but they need more than him. Uh, you know, the, the thing that concerns me with Piatti is uh, maybe, well, obviously his comments when he came here about, you know, I'm going to come here and, uh, and you know, make a good impression, and then maybe I will play for New York or Miami after. I mean, those kind of things, that kind of thing concerns me because it was interesting in the press conference, uh, that we had on Monday, that uh, there you know, was a lot of talk about you know, having lost Davy Arno and and and, Nesta and this sort of leadership uh, vacuum that uh, that that existed in the team going into the season, and you know, a lot of talk about you know players next year needing to step up, you know, kind of. And it was interesting when the question was put to Piatti. It's like, you know, are you like a guy, kind of a leader in the locker room? And it was kind of like. He was basically kind of like, oh, no, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty chilled-out guy, you know. It's like, you know, it's almost to say that, like, you know, when we're losing, I'm not going to go yell at players, you know, and kind of just, like, whatever. Like, he seems um very talented player for sure, but I don't know, um, you know, where this guy, like, how much this guy really cares or I, I mean, maybe I'm jumping to conclusions here. Uh, but from my, my sense, my concern with him is, uh, is just you know, um, you know whether he's going to be a leader on this team or not. That would be my my only little concern with him. But they certainly need to. Uh, there's a lot of positions they're going to have to address. Uh, there's uh, he's not going to be able to carry this team on his own. That's for sure. Uh, I will end with a positive. I think the most positive thing from my my perspective, from an outside perspective, was uh, the emergence of some of your young players later in the year. Now, yeah, you got to take that with a with a grain of salt because we saw it in Toronto the year before when they were out of it too, and you had young players that sort of stepped up and looked okay, and maybe didn't jump back up and continue that progression the next year. Just how excited yeah. should we be by some of those young guys, and how many do you think will be making a significant contribution next year? Yeah, well, there's USL teams, so it's going to be interesting to see who they decide to send uh, to the USL team. The Impact right now have eight players uh, on the team from the academy. I would expect most of them to go to the USL team, to be quite honest with you, because uh, well, some of the players that came up in the beginning, like you know, uh, like a, like a like a we met, for example, probably weren't ready for MLS. Um, so I don't. My feeling that for next year, uh, players that will probably remain for sure is you know Daniel Pare. 
just played for Canada already, 19 years old. Uh, I I think he's um, a very, very interesting player for the future. Um, outside from that, uh, I, I, I can't say, you know, for, I, I, I can't say for certain that any, any other player will will be the impact senior team next year. Maybe a maxi so maybe, um, but it's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, you know, yeah, you know, in terms of the younger players, not an academy player, but uh, um, Callum Malice, a uh, player that they drafted in 2012, um, and, you know, didn't play the first year, uh, went to went on loan to in the NASL last year. Minnesota. And this year, at the end of this year, he, he's really started to play a lot, and he's played a, um, uh, a lot of games now in the center midfield, and he's growing a lot. He, he's really... Um, seems to be a lot more comfortable in the, in the center midfield, like understanding where he needs to be in certain situations. Physically, he's great for the impact because he's a guy that number one can you know run around all day. You know, he's, he's, he covers a lot of ground. That's something that they've lacked. Um, so, certainly a player that I think will be very useful for the impact as he continues to grow. I'd say him and Gamal Pore probably the most more interesting young players. Uh, a lot of the other guys I expect will probably be um, with the USL team next year. All right. Uh, Nick, why don't you tell the listeners how they can uh, read your work? Oh, well, you know, well, best way to follow me is on uh, is on my Twitter account, Nick Sabetti, or you can check out Goal.com Canada or the Sportsnet uh, soccer, soccer site. You can check out the contributors there. I'm, I'm one of them. So uh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I really, uh, really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun talking to the impact. There's always so much to talk about. Uh, uh, there's almost, uh, it'll be interesting to see how things develop over, over the next few months. Uh, there's going to be a lot of action, I think, uh, <laughs> over the next month or two. For all of the, the lack of success off the, on the pitch, the Canadian team certainly have uh, not a, a restriction on things to talk about often, uh, Nick. But, uh, yeah, we, we do thank you. And, uh and we'll take a quick break now, and we'll come back, and Kevin and I will uh, we'll give our own thoughts on the Impact's 2014 season. Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast on Stitcher Radio with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramay. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Listen to the show on Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio, Stitcher Radio. Would you just please subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio? Thank you very much for subscribing to the show. And now, back to the show on Stitcher Radio. Coming soon on Stitcher Radio. And we're back. And as I said, uh, that was a long conversation, one of our longer interviews. But, uh, you know, if if Nick's feeding you stuff, you're going to keep eating it, right? Um, Oh, yeah. So uh, we just went with that. Uh, Kevin, a couple things. We're not going to go over everything that he said because there's too much and we don't want to repeat it too often. But I think that there's a few interesting things to take out from that. And uh, there is one that we did as we sort of bypassed a bit, and that, that's the DeSantos situation. So I guess we could talk about that with you. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is he done? Is he um, legitimately gone from a position of, of influence on player personnel? Or, nope. I don't think he is. Or, or do you think that the screen... He he's still well. He wasn't Bologna for all that, and his role is, in theory, he represents the impact abroad to try to create new networks and to sign players. So unfortunately, I believe that his influence is still too present 
uh, for the players to present around the club. And it's always good to be passionate and to love a club and to understand its origin and its beginning. But eventually, every club, they don't burn the bridges. They just change lane. And they try to put the club in a new mentality, put the club in a new direction. And if you want to, if you say it, you got to do it. And by just putting DeSantis from one lane to another without necessarily changing anything, well, the message that you're sending to your fans and the message that you're trying to send are two different. And you're not coherent. And what happens is you lose a little bit of credibility when that happens. It's almost like. I don't want to believe because this is an impact show, so we're not going to use too many Toronto comparisons here, but it's what I know. It's almost like that we have uh, two sides of a coin uh, in, in Toronto and Montreal of bad management, yeah. and they're opposites, but they're both equally poor. And I think that that's an important message for people to understand because here in Toronto, a lot of people will, will scream out, especially last year when the impact had you know a couple months of good play, which led them to finish fifth. Uh, they were, oh, I wish Joey Saputo were, Saputo were our passionate owner instead of the big, empty, corporate MLSE. And I'm sure there are times last winter when some people, maybe not everyone in Montreal, but some people in Montreal were going, I wish that you know, we were spending the type of money that that big corporate ent- entity were. But instead, what you have is you have this one hand where you have, like I said, it's corporate ownership, and it has some pros because there's a lot of money behind it, and it has a lot of cons because it's not quick to react to situations it's too stuck in its sort of corporate ways, uh, Peter Principles kind of at play, a lot of things like that. And then on the other hand, you have Joey Saputo and his hyper-passionate, hyper-personal, emotional kind of uh, independent leadership. Maybe not as financial, like they're well off, but they're not as well off as MLSC. Let's not kid ourselves. Yeah. And, Who is? Yeah, very, very few com- companies in the world at any rate. Exactly. Uh, you know, the point being that when you get to, to take it back to Montreal specifically – that is not always good, and I think that this personal connection that that Joey has with DeSantos is, is kind of not allowing him to see the forest for the trees, so to speak. It's not allowing him to completely sever ties and to move forward in a way that will allow this team to succeed. They may have, because it's MLS, and MLS, even at, at your worst, as we saw with DC United, aren't that far away from success. So you may have blips, but in terms of continued year-after-year success... I don't know if we see evidence yet that Montreal or Toronto, but Montreal in this particular case, has the ability to do that. Now, and to continue on that uh, in that vein, there's an article right now. It's a French article, but it's from Marc Tuga, who used to write for the Presse Canadienne, for the Canadian Press. And he writes that uh, Richard Lejean, the VP of Marketing for The Impact, came out yesterday or the day before. And he was saying how he wants The Impact to have the same type of media coverage that the Canadians and the Habs get. <coughs> but you know what? Some journalists actually do treat the impact like an NHL team. And what do they have for that? Uh, very, very harsh comments when they walk into the the, the aisles of Stad Saputo. Non-return of calls. And I would raise my hand here. They never return an email. All that type of happening that happens in the front office... Well, if you want to be treated like an NHL or like a Montreal Canadiens or like an NHL franchise, sometimes you have to act like one. And it's always a question of the chicken before the egg. Well, sometimes you have to act first and the rest will follow. And that's one of the 
things that I would love the impact to do more. It's not just embrace us. I don't really, really care about us. But to embrace the supporters and be honest to them and be, tell them the way it's going on. Don't tell them stupid things. For example, the vial, they were trying to say that it was done at the last minute. It was done in March. It just was trying to hype to get to people to know him. Well, tell the people that. Be honest. Be upfront. Do it for the right reason. Stop trying to put things behind curtains and behind closed doors and to be shady about stuff. In the same article, Troy Perkins, who's been named the scapegoat this season, without merit, because honestly, he had nobody in front of him to stop it. When you're going to get shot 15 shots a goal a game, of course a couple are going to go in, and nobody's going to score because the value wasn't there. Anyways, go back to the Troy Perkins side. He was a scapegoat, and you can tell that that guy had a lot of his shoulder throughout the whole season because he was blamed in the, behind closed doors in the locker room. And he said to the journalist, I could come out and say a lot of stuff, but I won't. He won't because he's a professional about it. But I can't say that it's the case about everyone. It's interesting you're talking about how people want the impact to be pressured from outside. It's basically what I'm hearing with that, right? And- well, to... to- but they want the impact to be a little bit more open, but the impact are crying wolf because they don't think they have enough coverage. But they shot themselves in the foot by being not necessarily mean, but not being upfront. And the the best way to say it is in the media or in the media world, the marketing world, sometimes when you're in those positions in the professional franchise, you have to be objective about it. And even though a journalist comes in your press room and always belaters you, Maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe you should actually listen to the dude instead of trying to get him out of your press room. Yeah, and, and that's certainly uh, a topical conversation in MLS right now. Um, uh, you know, from my experience over the last seven, eight years, uh, the sort of I had to order the accessibility of the three biggest professional clubs. Um, and, you know, the number one by far would be the two and ASL clubs right now. But that's, I, I think, when you're at a lower level, you are happy for, for coverage. To be um, honest, we had uh, Vancouver. We asked for anybody from Vancouver, and they gave us their president in not even 24 hours' notice. Yeah, Vancouver, so, is, always, Vancouver is really good to us. Vancouver has always been the best for access. Uh, Toronto uh, is harder to get access to. However, uh, what I will say about Toronto is, and maybe this speaks to what I said a minute ago, when they're big corporate, uh, they really don't deny people on coverage. There's none of that sort of censorship or pressure that you get. The TFC is not really doesn't really operate that way, so I would break them second. But uh, from right the get-go, way back on the old, it's called football days, back on the, you know, the early days of 24th minute through Canadian soccer, is the impact have always been a very, very tough nut to crack. Um, and I've tried to approach them in English and in French and in both. I tried everything, too. I, did, I yeah. tried both. And I live, uh, what, 20 kilometers away from the stadium, and I can't even get an email back. Not even a, a – nothing. Not even like a no answer. Not even the, oh, sorry, Kevin, we won't be able to. I wouldn't mind that. But just – I don't care if I'm not even acknowledged. It's just my listeners want it, and they can't get it. That's That's the – that's what hurts me, right? Yeah, double-edged sword. And I, I think that, you know, in this market, I understand a little bit about how TFC operates because, you know, and I have no delusions about where I stand in their packing order. So, you know, it's not that. Uh, I just think that uh, if you're asking for more coverage, you shouldn't turn down any coverage uh, so long as you can accommodate it. And at the very least, as you said, it would be nice if, you know, you occasionally get, uh, I'm sorry, we can't do that, which, you know, it doesn't always not happen here in Toronto, but it sometimes doesn't and uh they're very convenient how they respond actually when, yeah, when they're they like, almost feel good make you feel good about it 
Well, I'm just saying when when it's when the information they want to provide you is something that benefits you, they tend to respond a little quicker. But, however, um, getting a little off topic, but uh, it, to get back onto the season, uh, the other let's let's move towards the player end of things, and obviously Devio uh, is gone now, so there isn't. We've talked a lot about Devio in this in this podcast over the year, Kevin. So I don't know whether there's much more to say about him right now that's relevant to the impact as they stand because we have to look forward. But what isn't relevant, what is relevant, pardon me, is the Piate and sort of those comments that, uh, that Nick gave us about his uh, leadership and just sort of overall attitude. So I just what are your reaction to uh, uh, Nick's description of uh, Piate's uh, leadership was. It's funny when Nick said that because that's kind of the idea that I had about him, which could be a good or a bad thing for a soccer player. When you play free on a soccer pitch of all doubt and questions about yourselves or your skills, you can do great things on a football pitch. Just ask Messi or Ronaldo or Piatti when he was with San Lorenzo, did great stuff. So there's always that aspect of a professional football player that's interesting to look at is when they're playing with such a high confidence, with such a cool dude attitude, sometimes it can bring a lot of stuff on the pitch. But in a locker room, it can create a... We, we all know the North American blue-collar type attitude that you need to work hard every presence and the type of movement that usually those players create seems to be nonchalant they're they're not but the way the fluidity of the movement that they do on the pitch can be taken for nonchalant and even though it's not but with Piatti he seems aloof a little bit just he's always happy always giggly always seems in a good mood all right he's 29 years old he's pretty he's got every girl's after him I would be the same, but he seems aloof, and that can probably give... It depends what type of defense you're on, but you can rub people the right way or the wrong way. Yeah, and certainly within the world of football, there's room for a player like that, the immensely talented uh, enigma, uh, which is sort of how he strikes me. Maybe like a more talented D-roll, maybe even, if you look at it that way, you know? Um but at the same time, when you're trying to build, if you want, do you really want to build around a guy like that, a guy that may not be fully emotional invested? Like this sounds to me like we were joking off air that the only reason he's not going to end up in Miami in two years is because we're not too sure Miami's going to be there in two years. Atlanta might be more possible. Yeah, or New York or L.A. or what have you. But, um, you know, and like I said, that's the reality of the, of the sport. And when you're in a position like Montreal or any of the Canadian teams for that matter, because we're not the sexiest locations, and let's be honest about that, um, I mean, uh, that's nothing to say against Montreal or Toronto or Vancouver as cities. They're all beautiful cities, but... Uh, but there's from, snow here, so yes, you're right yeah. with you. <laughs> well, from someone outside the world, they may have heard of them, but they don't know of these places. They don't have the same perception. They may come here and fall in love, but they're not going to be drawn there instantly from outside, right? That's what I'm trying to say. So you can't beggars can't be choosers. Uh, you know when you got a guy that talented that's willing to come, even if it is for a couple of years, the best you could do is to come and try and convince him to stay, uh, if you can get him here off the top. And I think that so I'm not going to criticize Montreal for bringing him in, but uh, certainly it does beg some questions of, of whether he's the guy to build around. And you know we don't know the off season's pretty key for Montreal, so maybe they they understand that and are trying to get someone in uh, to replace that. Um, Kevin, let's let's end uh, with the negative talk of the review talk before we move a little, look a little bit forward and maybe reflect a little bit of, uh, on more personal level after this. Uh, Clopas, uh, are you confident that he is the the man to to lead the uh, impact forward? And were you happy with his job this season? Uh, no, and a no. Okay, <laughs> I'm not happy with his job because the fa- the team did not progress, and. Y- 
any coach ever, every coach cannot be considered a savior or messiah and change everything. What you want to see is when the day they step into the job until today, with their progress as a team, as individual players, are the young kids better than they were? Or do you have an identity, a playing identity that's starting to be created? And the answer to all those questions is no. And Frank Lopez, I said before the beginning of the season on Off the Woodworks with uh, uh, Scott Fenwick from On the Fire Radio from Chicago, that Klopas, he saw Klopas for many seasons as technical director and as coach. And he said he's one of the worst coaches you've seen because he, he's, he's a, it seems like he always takes the wrong decision and finds scapegoats players to put it on their shoulders that are not the right responsible for that. And it seems like it always splits the locker room. And in Montreal, it seems like the locker room split in three right now. And I heard a lot of good things happen in that locker room this season. And I don't have any trouble thinking that it's true when you look at the results on the pitch. Okay. Um, before we move and look at next season and what needs to happen, and we'll end it with there, I think, uh, just a quick little uh, reflection back from you, Kevin, on a personal level. Uh, do you have a highlight and a lowlight of, uh, of the season that you can pinpoint? The highlight was the quarterfinals of the Champions League qualification with a game left to play. Which uh, nobody expected that, especially with New York, which is a decent team in the group. But New York had other things to play for. So that would be my highlight. The low light would be my low light. It would be the re-signing of Nelson Rivas at the beginning of the season and how everybody's trying to forget about it right now. That gambler's move cost Nick DeSantis his job. That move cost every credibility that the Montreal Impact uh, recruitment organization had or just the fact that Two years in a row, he's always injured, and you're re-signing him for a third year, and he still doesn't... Why did you sign him? You knew that he was going to be that way. That's what I don't get. Okay. And now, the important thing is, there's going to be a bit of a lull uh, while the playoffs happen. That's uh, a time for all of us that uh, follow or cover teams that uh, that didn't make the playoffs to sort of catch our breath and... Uh, and uh, absorb our thoughts on, how, on what had just passed before you get into the most important part of the MLS season, which is from uh, mid-November till the start of February. That's when the stuff happens. That's when championships are won or lost for the next year. Uh, Kevin, what needs to happen for the impact over the next three, four months so that they are in a better position for uh, 2015? A reality check. They need to be able to look at themselves in the mirror and maybe realize that they underestimated the league and they overestimated their own knowledge of North American players, international players, and just soccer in general. Uh, I think we're closer to the truth in 2012 than we were today. The loss of Davey Arnault has repercussions that nobody expected. That type of American veteran backbone of your team, the type of thing that DC United did in the last season, last offseason, need to be, that blueprint need to be taken over from DC to Montreal. Already things went from Montreal to DC in the past, now it's the other way around. And we need the, that return of the uh, elevator. Fair enough. And, uh, you know, last question uh, before we take a quick break and wrap the women up. Um, do you have hope for next year? I mean, it's early and it's kind of kind of unfair to ask at this point, but uh, your knee-jerk gut reaction to, to should Impact fans have hope that next year will be better? 
Yes, because I just, like I just mentioned, DC United went from last to first in a year without spending $100 million, so it's possible. All right, fair enough. Let's take a quick break, Kevin. That was a lot to absorb in the impact. Uh, we're going to do the same tomorrow for Toronto, but uh, before we do that, uh, let's have a little brief conversation on the Canadian women, update you on some sad news on the injury front there and get a little turf update after this quick break. Thanks for listening to the Two Solid Dudes MLS podcast with Wayne Rollins and Kevin Larmay on Canadian Soccer News. If you want to reach to any Kevin, email twosolidudespodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Two Solid Dudes Pod. Go like our page on Facebook. iTunes, rate and review. Now back to the show. And we're back and uh, let's talk about turf, baby. All right. Sorry. Um, <laughs> very brief. And I'm not going to belabor this right now. We might have a, I might have more of an opportunity to update this a little bit more in written form on Canadian soccer news uh, after uh, today or tomorrow uh, when I finish my next part of the, uh, the TFC written season review. But um, in short, what has happened in the last few days is that the lawyers, the women's lawyers, have uh, publicly released a uh, filing to the tribunal uh, where they have outlined how uh, they believe they're alleging that FIFA and the CSA are um, intimidating uh, players to remove themselves from the filing. A um, couple of things on that. Uh, it, it's not that unrealistic of an of an idea that FIFA would be telling people that they might be suspended for being involved in a in a suit or to use the terminology that they're using against them uh, that's because FIFA bylaws specifically say that uh, that they're going to sue you that they're going to suspend you if you're involved in outside interference if you use outside interference to to sue them there is um provisions within FIFA to uh if you have uh, an issue with them, to take them to the this tribunal of, of sport, uh, sport commission, and, and it's not getting the name right right now. I apologize for that. International but Tribunal of Sport in Geneva. Thank you. <laughs> yes, you, you're supposed to go through that uh, if you have an issue with them, and uh, these women are not going through that, so the, they very, very well could be facing some kind of uh, of consequence for that. Um, that's not really a gender issue. That's a FIFA issue. Uh, do I agree with that? I don't necessarily agree with that. I understand on one level how you don't want just general sport issues going through uh, courts, but I understand on levels like this that probably it is appropriate to use a, an independent body, a uh, completely independent body that's not sport-related to, to do that kind of uh, filing. But um, that is the update there. Uh, the other quick note I'll have is uh, there's one of the lawyers that I, I talked to is pretty adamant that uh, what are their, their main concerns with with what's happening is this constant leaking of documents by the women's lawyer. And the way that they put it is that reputable lawyers don't leak documents to the press. And that leads them to believe that this, as we've speculated many times before, that this is a PR play. Um, we speculate that because we've looked heavily into the law and we don't believe that the law is going to hold this up. And the question that I have to make is, you know, some people are going to listen to this and say, good, I'm glad it's a PR play, and there should be a PR play, and we should be highlighting these things. And I agree on some level that, yes, we need to push and make sure that, that women's football is is equal. Um, I just, as I've questioned many times before, you know, is this the hill to die on? I'm not sure it is. 
I'm not sure it's even um, helpful to try and fight the battle on this. And I think that it, it may end up hurting the overall cause. But uh, Especially like you're saying, the way, they're, the way they're going about it. Yeah, because it alienates people. And it's, it's shut. The dialogue isn't happening in Canada. It's turned into a U.S. fans versus Canadian fans thing. Um, rather than an actual conversation about whether turf is safe and whether turf has value, can actually increase the access of the game worldwide. Um, it has blinded us to other issues that have happened. Um, I think that this Trinidad and Tobago uh, funding issue with you know their, their federation sending them with a $500 check to qualify for a World Cup is a far more aggrie- grievous uh, instance of sexual discrimination in, in the sport. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm suspecting that the players get $500 a day on the men's side <laughs> to, like, in, each individual player might to try and qualify for the World Cup, right? Could so, be more than that, too. To me, that's more discrimination than, than playing on turf where there is no evidence whatsoever that the surface is inferior. And that is the bottom line. And, you know, and that's without getting into the arguments, like I said, about how the third world uh, needs to have turf more legitimized to open up the game to those areas so that they can also be part of it in an equal level. Um, it's just, it's not as black and white, I don't believe, as, as people are making it out to be uh, on the south of the border in particular, because they're just, they're only getting one side of the story down there. And it's because this lawyer keeps leaking these documents and keeps spinning them in such a way that makes things seem... It seems like the the way that they released this document at this past little while yeah. is it makes it sound like FIFA is standing there with their arms crossed, tapping their their foot on the ground, going, "I dare you," but that's not the case. This would have just simply been probably people saying, "You know, if you do this, you're probably going to get suspended at their federation level." And then just the last thought on that, Kevin, what the hell does the CSA have to do with that? Why is the CSA equally being alleged to be threatening these women? There's three women in particular that are, are pointed out. One of them is uh, Mexican. Two of them are French. I'm not sure what power the CSA would possibly have over two French players and a Mexican. They don't have any power over them, so I don't know why the CSA is included in the document. No, I have to agree. And like you say, it's neither black or white. It's many different shades of gray, but that expression has taken a whole different meaning in the last couple of years, so I'm never going to use it again. <laughs> Oh, different topic, especially in re- recent cultural news is here in, in Canada. But uh, I digress. Um, let's segue on that completely awkwardly. Unfortunately, the, yes. Uh, bad and, news for Diana Matheson today. Yeah. Uh, ACL sounds like uh, indefinite. Uh, it, you know, it's never a good time to have that happen. But I guess if you were going to pick the best of bad times, it might be at the end of a season, which we are currently at. Um so she should be healthy enough to maybe come back for Cyprus in February. Uh, however, it's, she's, you know, the older you get, and I'm just not saying Diana Matheson is an old woman. She, by no means is she not. She's a very young woman. But in a sporting context, she's not 22 anymore, so you're not going to spring back quite as fast. She is vital to Canada's hopes. Um, she is has was my pick for Canadians, Canada's Women's Player of the Year last year. Uh, she did not win because Christine Sinclair is an automatic pick for a lot of people that don't pay a lot of attention. Um, she is going to be my vote again for Canadian Women's Player of the Year. So this is a serious blow to the hopes of the team. And she was instrumental in the, the bronze medal at the Olympics. And she is instrumental if Canada want to do anything in next year's World Cup. Yeah, well, she obviously scored the winning goal, the bronze winning goal. But, I mean, beyond that, she was instrumental throughout the tournament. She's just a fireplug in the midfield that really 
uh, creates a lot, uh, a key player for them. We saw in last night's game, and maybe this is a good segue to that, uh, how the young Jesse Fleming might be able to play a similar role. Uh, but she's 16, and I don't know whether we should be expecting that in one year. Uh, that said, she looked really good last night. Uh, she's playing against, uh, for those who don't know, as a quick reminder, Canada lost 3-2 to Japan in Vancouver, about twelve to 15,000 fans there, depending on who you heard from. It was uh, not as good a crowd as we've seen in the past, but again, uh, same caveats as I talked about Edmonton. It's, a, it's hard to sell those games all the time. Um, Canada uh, was much better than they were in the 3-0 loss in Edmonton. Um, that, on one level, is understandable because Japan... Uh, changed its lineup for all but two players. They essentially were playing, played their A side in, in Edmonton and their B side in, in Vancouver, if you like those kind of terminologies. Uh, that said, it's still a decent team. Japan's B team would still be, you know, probably a top 10 ranked team in the world. So. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably one of the second, one of the best teams in the world, even though it's a B team. They can have two teams in the best in the world. So we're not going to completely dismiss the Canada's effort on that. Uh, the, the, the challenging thing, and look, if you haven't seen the highlights, I'm not going to... I'm not going to signal anyone out, but there was a terrible mistake at the very end of the game. That Please that, describe it to the listeners the way you described it to me earlier today. Well, Canada fought back to to get us kind of a scrappy draw in injury time, and then off the ball went into the to the attacking zone for Japan. It was immediately put back uh, towards the Canadian uh, defensive line. The the defender was going back, kind of jogging backward, and the Japanese woman just came blasting at her, stripped the ball off her, went out on a full breakaway and scored in the very last kick of the game. It was... it's a, If you were going to compile a blooper list of Canada's all-time bloopers, either gender, this one's right near the top. Full, you know, Probably it's like number two around you know, with the 8-1 game as collectively number one, <laughs> and then that would be two, as far as I can tell. And then you have like nine or eight other men's game blumpers after that, because uh, that just kind of tells you how uh, how much how bad it was. It was a, a terrible play, and I, that player knows it. And I'm not even saying her name because I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to shame her anymore. Is why I'm not saying her name. Um, you know, they know they're professional athletes. They they understand when they make a mistake like that. But uh, it. it Buchanan uh, made a not quite as bad mistake for the second goal too, where she fanned in a ball and it flipped up and it went in, and the Japanese player made a beautiful shot on the opening she got. Um, Canada was opened up on the back line for all three goals. Uh, just one stood out more than the others, and that's kind of troubling. But you know, three two was a decent result. I think the fans there got, to, other than that last kick of the game, got a nice entertaining game out of it. Uh, certainly something to build on a little bit, but the, the Matheson news is is unfortunately going to overshadow all of that today uh, when we talk about that. All right, Kevin, that's uh, another long show. we got another long show to go tomorrow. Uh, we, we've got a guest set up that I think is going to add a little something to it. Uh, tomorrow is going to put a little bit of a different perspective on things for us uh, from the TFC front when we wrap up Toronto FC's bloody big mess of a season in tomorrow's show. But until that time, Kevin... Say goodbye. Watch the playoffs tonight, and until tomorrow, have a great soccer.